Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enid Pratt Free Library, and welcome to, I have to say, for a mystery lover, personally, and for the Pratt Library in general, one of the most special editions of our Writers Live series. This is definitely a pleasure because we have not only one, but two best-selling and award-winning authors right here in Baltimore at the Central Library. So I think that deserves a hand. Now, if that wasn't enough, we also have two additional authors that are here. One, another one of my favorites, who has just moved back to Baltimore, Miss Massey. You have to show Sajeda Massey. And we have Marsha Talley. And I'm not finished with the specialness part because we have people who have traveled from the eastern part of this state, from Oxford, who were here to celebrate with us as well. So give them a hand. And I promise this is it. We also have a former librarian who is living every librarian's dream. She is the owner of a bookstore, Ms. Kathy Herrick. Every librarian in the world envies her. Now, we are also blessed that we in Baltimore have had the, uh, I think, privilege of having one of the best independent uh, bookstores in the country, Little Prejudice, and we are very pleased that they are continuing to be our authors, um, authors, see, librarians, we can't help it, um, that our partners and the Ivy Bookstore is now owned by Mr. Ed and Mrs. Ann Berlin. They are here. And please give them a hand for keeping. Ann, Ann's kind of shy. Here's Ann, all right. Thank you for keeping the Ivy going and for also sponsoring book clubs and being a partner with the Pratt. This really means so much to us as well. So for more uh, wonderful things uh, that are happening at the Pratt Library, please get a copy of The Compass and uh, go online. We're tweeting and Twittering, Facebooking, all of that stuff. So thank you, thank you. As I mentioned, there are times when being a librarian has some definite perks. And one was the first time I met Miss um, Laura Lippman. She was still a reporter at the Baltimore Sun, and I had just arrived in Baltimore, and she did an article on my arrival, or my first year. I still, I mean, I know, and this is my claim to fame now, <laughs> because if you saw the New York Times today, you saw the wonderful review of her new book, uh, she has been a library supporter. She has supported the literary arts. She has just written an impressive collection of tales, ranging from, of course, Tess, who helped me learn about Baltimore, to all of her uh, complex and outstanding books. So we just want to welcome her and let her know that her books help so many people fall in love with the city of Baltimore. So thank you. <laughs> 
so I was going to read about all the awards, the Edgar, the Anthony, the Agatha, the Nero Wolf, the Gumshoe, the Barry, the first ever recipient of the Mayor's Prize for Literary Excellence, and the first genre writer recognized as author of the year by the Maryland Library Association. But tonight she's here to be with her friend and fellow author. So thank you. Uh, it gives me enormous pleasure to be here tonight to interview Tana French. I have a feeling that just judging by the size of the audience that everyone here knows very well what an accomplished body of work she has produced starting in 2007 within the woods. Uh, one of the difficulties in having this conversation is avoiding spoilers for all of the books. So in some ways it will be general and we're not going to get into the, the finest, finest points because there may be someone who hasn't read them all. Be kind. Um, I will open this up with about 15 minutes left to go so that you can ask questions from the audience. When I do, I ask that I think they're microphones, but just in case, I might repeat it. Um, I happen to know that Tana has a train to catch, so I will be strict about time to make sure that she doesn't miss her train to New York tonight because then she would miss her plane home tomorrow, and that would be <laughs> As it happens, I reached out today to one of your editors, Josh Kendall, because I knew him and I had his email. And I said, so what would be your suggestions for, for questions, for lines of inquiry that you don't think have been pursued? Because there have been a lot of profiles. I've read them. And what he said, and it's a part of your biography. It's not that it's unknown. You were born into a family, or an American, American born, or born yeah. to American parents, but born in the United States but started traveling at a very young age because of your father's job. Your father was, he worked in resource management, so it's kind of how developing countries keep their resources renewable all and, over the place. And what Josh wondered was, how did that experience of traveling so much as a child, of being in such different places, did that begin to form you as a writer, whether you knew it at the time or not? Well, that's a really cool question. Josh was my editor. He's now moved. But he is, yeah, he's a really insightful guy. And that kind of, that's a very interesting thing for him to say. It did, definitely. I think it shows most probably in the likeness and in Faithful Place, both of which are very much about home. You know, the likeness is about these, these set of students who are trying to make this big old house into their home forever. And Faithful Place is about the concept of home from a different way. It's this tight-knit kind of inner city community. And the narrator, Frank, thinks he's left it behind forever, and it pulls him back. And I think the fact that I had never had anywhere that you know, counted as home that was, that, that was permanent, anywhere that I could rely on to stay put for more than a year or two, that definitely shaped what I'm writing about, that idea of home goes through all of them. And I think it shows up in this as well, in Broken Harbor. The idea that it's set on one of these ghost estates outside Dublin, right? I, I don't I think you guys have something a bit like this, but it probably hasn't been as bad. Where during the property boom, people were building, developers were building things that should never have been built. They weren't needed. I think more in California, this is a densely mm. populated enough area so that but yeah, if you probably go pretty far out West 70 or into certain places there were there was a buildup that you now wonder who is going to, but not to the extent of Ireland. In Ireland, it was biggest out in the middle of the country, and it was due to this combination of like over optimism and flat out corruption. And there are huge estates that got started, and then when the crash came, 
the, the developers just walked away. They just packed up and left. And so these places are, are half built. They were half sold off the plans. So there are a few people living in them here and there. The rest has just been abandoned. There's, you know, there's no street lighting. There are no footpaths. There's no proper sewage. There's nothing around. And yet the people who live there, they can't get out because their mortgages are so far in negative equity. Underwater, you guys. Is, is the phrase yeah, here, right? Underwater. Yeah, underwater. Yeah, the mortgages right. are so far underwater. And who's going to buy this anyway? So they can't get out. They're trapped now. And they didn't start out thinking of these places as homes. They thought of them as investments. That's how they were pushed on. And it was my generation, the 30-somethings, who really had these things pushed at them. You need to buy here because property prices are skyrocketing. You can't afford to buy in any town. You need to do this. You need to get on the property ladder now. In two years, it'll have doubled in price. You sell it. You buy something you actually want to live in. So these were never quite thought of as homes. They were always thought of as investments. And so there's this dislocation, I think, between the fact that these people are now stuck living there indefinitely, like, which they never thought would happen. And yet this was somewhere that was never meant to be a home. And that kind of jars. And they're caught in this vice grip between the two halves of how they thought of this There's thing. a dissonance almost in, in... That's what I was looking for. It's funny because um, I happened two weeks ago to attend the Sikhston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival in Harrogate, and I listened to uh, Dublin writer John Connolly mm -hmm. talk about, and Ireland was so poor until so very recently, it's kind of easy to forget that now. <clears throat> But he's only, I think, four years older than you are, and he grew up in a home where there were three generations, and his grandfather died in the house in bed, which is something that is is somewhat rare now. And you know, tiny little house where there was no space available, and and just the contrast in Ireland between the bust, not even the bust, just the long years of sort of economic stagnation where people had to leave to find jobs yeah. and then you know the so-called uh, Celtic, Celtic tiger and the in the boom years and it was a, it was a Ponzi scheme yeah, in a way yes it was one big pyramid scheme and eventually it ran out of victims and went boom the way it always does I mean, one of the most impassioned sections in Broken Harbor is the rant about this no it's, it's really it's I mean, in a book that where people are controlling their emotions, mm. you know, particularly two detectives with a suspect, mm. where everything's about sort of the, you know, it's it's a game that's played out and everyone knows their part. And certainly, the two detectives are not supposed to have any uncontrolled emotions. There's this moment when one of them sort of agrees with the suspect who's yeah. gone on this rant, and it it feels it. I mean, I think it's one of the most emotional moments in the book. It's it's. It, and it scorches sort of on the outside, feeling like they're it. on the same side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think he's he's from a slightly different generation as well. Scorcher, the narrator, he's in his forties, so that's the generation who mostly would have settled, bought their houses, got their feet on the ground before all of this kicked in. The two younger ones, the two other people, the suspect and Richie, the other cop, having the conversation, they're both in their thirties. They're both from the generation who, if they, if we weren't suckered ourselves, we know people who were. You know, we, pe we know people who are out there. And you're right that Ireland went very quickly from being just, a, you know, a whole country's history's worth of being desperately broke, and then, boom, all of a sudden, we were the biggest millionaires, we had the most millionaires of anyone in, in the world, and then, bam, right back where, where we started. And we never had time 
to assimilate it in any healthy way. It's like if you come from a family that's been poor for generations and you win the lottery, there's a chance you'll deal with it healthily, but it's a small chance because you've never seen any healthy way of dealing with money. There's a decent chance you'll blow through it and find yourself with nothing. And this turned out to be imaginary money as well. And the bit that gets me ranting is this kind of disconnect that happened on a national level between reality and belief, where we were being told that you had to believe that this would last forever, that this housing bubble and this economic boom, you have to believe that they will last forever. And if, if anybody actually mentioned, actually, hang on, this isn't really built on anything, this is, this is built on quicksand, he was just excoriated, attacked by the politicians, by the property developers, by the bankers. Uh, one guy, um, our prime minister at the time, said that he thought these people who were suggesting that there might not be, you know, this might, everything might not be perfect forever, he thought, why don't they just go kill themselves? Those were his words, you know? And that, at the time, was almost the national mood. And it, 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 reality was like, it was irrelevant and it was unpatriotic. It's interesting because I was in Dublin in the fall of 2008 on a trip with my husband. It's like, it is the day that markets are imploding and we had gone to lunch with someone in Dublin, some fancy place that all the bankers fancied. Mm -hmm. And you could not tell from the tenor of that room that anything, everyone was still yeah. boisterous, much laughter, much whiskey being consumed. And you just looked around the room, it's like, again, this disconnect. Yeah. What do you know that we don't know? Or what are you not paying attention to? You speak of um, Ireland uh, as in the first person plural. You have dual citizenship, I believe. Yeah, it's actually USA Italian dual citizenship. I'm entitled to an Irish one, but I am extremely disorganized and haven't got around to it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know you could have. Now, how did how did Ireland become home? I know you went to Trinity College, but yes. is, was that it, or was there something else that drew you there and kept you there? We were going back there for summers a lot of the time when I was a teenager. We were living in Rome, but we were going back to Ireland for summers, and I loved it. I loved. I love the chat and the sense of humor, you know, and just the ongoing banter. The fact that this is currency, creativity with language is currency. It's, I mean, Irish people are, are fairly profane, but it's not just who can use the worst bad word, it's who can come up with the most creative bad word. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, some of my friends are really creative. And I, I just like that. The fact of language as currency, not just communication. I loved that. And I also loved the value that was placed on friendship. They're like, I was living in Italy where it's more common, if a guy and a girl go out for a coffee or a pint or whatever, it's assumed that there's either something romantic or some romantic potential there. There's no question that you could just be hanging out, having, you know, having a good time, enjoying each other's company. And in Ireland, that's completely normal. Like, you can go hang out with a guy friend. You can, and it's not seen as in any way strange. You, Friendship is the default mode, and I really like that. I've always had guy friends. I, I just like that sense that friendship and chat were the most important currencies there. And so when it was time for me to go to college, I went. That's where. I, that's where I want to go. Just and from having spent the summers there. You yeah, summers back. as a kid. Yeah, going, well, and having friends there and relatives and all the rest of it, and kind of, yeah, already having one toe dipped in that culture. And also, I'm coming from an international background. It's not that, 
all of my friends were going to college in X place and I branched off and went to Y. We were, I was in an international school in Rome. The second we graduated, everyone went worldwide. My best friend was in Manila three days later, you know, going back there for college and everybody went to America. To, we went to all different places. So it's not, it's not that I was striking out, kind mm -hmm. of uh, striking out on my own. I was just doing part of the scatter, the diaspora thing that we were all doing. Did you know that you would probably end up, because of your childhood, or that you wanted to, to stay in a place? Yeah. You, you knew that. That, oh, was, yeah. that was very intentional. You were going to find a place and stick to it. Yeah. Um, one of the things, too, about Ireland, and I hadn't really thought about this, and again, to refer back to listening to John Connolly, who's about, I think, about four years older than you are, maybe started publishing about four years before you did. So, And he said, you know, up until very recently, there was no tradition in Ireland of crime writing. He started he, it. Well, he, basically, he, yeah. he writes books set in Maine. Yeah. He said that when he began writing crime novels, he felt as if to be an Irish writer, one had to go appear before a mythical panel of three <laughs> pipe-smoking gentlemen, and they would say, and what is your subject, lad? And you would tell them, and they go, no, that's not Irish. Yeah, no, and, no. And, and yet in 2007, which when In the Woods Appears, Suddenly, and he said, and he connected it in a way I won't go into here with the troubles and how, since huh. that was the predominant thing that was happening in terms of violence in Ireland right. for so long, you couldn't write about it without people saying, well, I know who that fellow is, yeah. you know, and, and that yeah. it was just too small a country, it was too inward, and then <laughs> that is something that does change mm -hmm. when Ireland gets rich. Yeah. And so the first book you wrote. It didn't necessarily have to be a police procedural. It has this, someone called it, I'll, I like to quote my betters, I think Laura Miller, in writing about your books for Salon, talked about the thread of the uncanny that has that, run yeah. through your books. And it's like, so it could have been framed, for example, as Picnic and Hanging Rock, for example. It's interesting you say that. So you're, I think, the first person to point out to me that this basically is picnic at hanging rock. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but yet you decided to take this somewhat unconventional story, yeah, and set it within a What drew you to the police procedural with this material? See, I like mysteries anyway, right? I've always loved reading mysteries. I have, I was loving and admiring yours for I the the number of hours of just reading joy this woman has given me are, are <laughs> unbelievable. And I think I'm not alone in this, in this audience. But yeah, I, I've always loved mysteries. I, I don't care. I like real ones. I like fictional ones. I like solved. I like them unsolved. Mystery, whatever. But police procedural, it adds structure. And if it weren't for, somebody gets killed and somebody else finds out who done it. Like there are departures from that. And there are wonderful departures among the greats of the genre. But that's your basic. and. I write long books. If I didn't have that framework to hang them on, I would just keep writing. They'd be 4,000 pages long. <laughs> you, you I know, never had anything in. You do write quite long books yeah, for the I genre. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, and it is, it is difficult to read about you and to quell envy. Because it is. It's, I mean, your, your first book is this enormous success. Um, when we were about six blocks from here just handing awards out to you all weekend in the fall of 2008 when you couldn't <laughs> attend VoucherCon, but no, it was like, and Tana French again. No, you know, it was, you know, it was an amazing success. But that's not the thing that, that arouses envy in a writer's heart. It's that you just seem to know how to do this when you started. 
Now, you've been an actor, and you've talked yeah. about how that fed your craft, and I'd love it if you talked to this audience about it. You also have this really keen interest in archaeology. Yeah. And it's while you're working on a dig that you come up with this idea. At this point, if I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, you've never gone around saying, gee, I want to write a novel. You've Only never... when I was little. When I was little, I wanted to be a writer. But it kind of got sidetracked. The acting thing sidetracked that completely. Yeah. So you, you're an actor. You're happy. You're doing quite well as an actor, as I understand. You know, but you're, you're working. Yeah. You have this, you know, and you come up with this idea for a novel while you're working on the dig. And about a year later, you just think, well, I guess I'll start writing. And you just do. <laughs> and this is, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's really something to contemplate that someone can produce a first novel like that, that there are not, you know, typically when you read a first novel like this, you just say, okay, this is the first novel published. Yeah. There are five in a drawer because no, but that, you know, I mean, that's a very common story, but this just seemed to pour out of you based on what I read, and it was very intuitive. Yeah. It's not like you yeah. all, no, so no, talk a little bit any. about the process, talk about the idea, where it came from, and then how you just start to write. Yeah, it was, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, I don't have any creative writing training, but I do think that acting's really good training for a writer, because, you know, I, again, I've said this, but I, you're doing the same thing, especially if you write first person, which is what I do. You, you've got this character, I mean, you do this as well, these characters, come up and just flower when I'm... Your job is to turn this into a three-dimensional person, draw your audience in, and make them feel like this is someone they know. Draw them into the imaginative world so that they see everything through the character's eyes, through you know, their fears and their desires and their preconceptions. And if you can do that in acting, it's not a very long step to doing it in writing. It really is. It's excellent training. And it's also good training for thinking about structure. Because if you're doing a play, you're breaking it down. Like if you're an actor, you're focusing on, okay, here's this scene, so what are the units within this scene? How does each of these beats move me closer to or further from my objective? What, what do I want as a character from this scene? Okay, in this bit, I'm trying to get it by, by pushing towards it and it's not working. And in this bit, I'm trying to get it by moving around it and it's not working. And in this bit, I, I try to get it by cajoling. My, and you know, you're thinking in terms of structure linked to character motivation. So you think of every bit of writing as having to contribute to both character and plot. If that makes any sense. It's just, it's really a good way to get into this. No, and it, it seems to me, especially reading Broken Harbor, whenever you do long interrogation yeah. scenes, and I, I don't know if you would agree, it seems to me that the long interrogation scene is both the blessing and the curse of the police procedural. Yes. You have oh, to do yes. it. You yeah. have to do it. They have to go on for quite some length to be realistic. <laughs> and to have just two or three people in a room talking to each other, a room that by design is featureless. Yeah. There's there's like there are no props and there's so few things for them to play with. It's like, can I get you a drink? Can I get and you a they coffee? They can't have a conversation. It has to be interrogation and response, question and answer, question and answer. And if the other one ever asks the question, it's like, no, we ask the questions. And you're done. You know, it, it's it's not an actual conversation with the kind of subtext and and the kind of. It has no potential for an actual friendship. You know what I mean? Or any kind of relationship. It's not like this where we can converse and kind of, and, you know, move forward. There's no possibility of that. It's only moving for facts. And yeah. there's an artifice to it 
that everyone knows now. Yeah. Everyone knows about the good cop and the bad cop, and everyone knows about you know lawyering up, and we're yeah. all so savvy. One of the things that seems to be a stroke of genius, you look at it and in hindsight think, oh, of course. One of the great tensions in crime fiction is that if one writes a series based on a single character, then that character's business must remain unfinished. If you yeah. take them yeah. through big stories, as you have done in each book where you've yeah. taken each protagonist through major three-act stories, then they're kind of used up and how do yeah. you come back to them? And at the same time, people like series. They like a mm. sense of familiar. They like saying, I'm returning to this world that I know. There will be certain hallmarks in it. I want to, you know, if people read Sue Grafton, they want to see Rosie. They want to go to that cafe. They want her to go to McDonald's, et cetera, et cetera. By choosing to write the murder squad books, as they're mm. known, where the protagonist changes, but the setup doesn't, you seem to have almost solved the problem. And I don't know if you set out to solve the problem or if it was just at the end of <laughs> In the Woods, well, I can't possibly write another book. Yeah, what do I he's, do with him Yeah, now? he's kind of, yeah, that's not going to work. So yeah. it was just by happenstance. It was, yeah, it was. I, I like the big turning points. Like you said, the usual series thing is to kind of trace the character through the ups and downs of life, like P.D. James does it with mm -hmm. Dog Lee. She's been doing it for... How long now? Decades. She's been tracing him just through life, through kind of youth to middle age, and now he's getting old. And it isn't that she focuses only on this huge moment that will change his life. And I love reading that stuff. But just writing it, I want to write about the huge turning point, the moment where whatever this character decides, it's going to define the rest of his or, or her life, at both on a personal and on a professional level. And for a detective, and I think this is one of one of the careers where personal and professional are both most closely intertwined and have to be kept most separate, which is going to sound strange. But when the barriers start, there has to be a barrier. You only beco become a detective because you're a certain kind of person. Like, I, I wouldn't last 12 hours. <laughs> and I know it. No, I'm... When I have a bad day at work, we get too many adverbs. I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> Nobody dies. I'm happy with those low stakes. You know, I'm happy with knowing that it's, it's no matter how bad the paragraph is, it's not going to kill anybody. I couldn't, I couldn't handle that detective knowing that life and death and truth and justice hang on you. And I think in order to be a detective, you have to be that kind of person. And so the personal and the professional are very closely intertwined. But if you don't keep that barrier up, it's going to wreck your head. It really is. There's a, there's a moment in Broken Harbor when Scorcher talks to Richie about how it really is better to do this job if you don't have children. Yeah. You did not have a child when you wrote your first book? No, first three I wrote with no kids. Um, this one I wrote with sleep deprivation. <laughs> I, I happened to go through a similar change in my life where I'd written books without having a child, and now I've written three books since having a child, and no, two. I, I can't even count. <laughs> I guess what I'm, sleep deprivation yeah. will do to you. Uh, and, you know, people say it'll change you, it'll change you, mm. and I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want it to be right just because, you know, I was yeah. stubborn that way. I wanted to think. But it my experience was it changed me, but not in the ways I expected. And when I read Scorcher instructing Richie that way, I thought, okay, and for the writer, is this true too? Is it slightly mm. better not to have to I mean, this is a book in which 
two small children are killed in their beds. Yeah. And that's, that's tough stuff. And yeah. it is essentially a locked room mystery mm. with a family behind closed and alarmed and locked doors. Yeah, and, and someone slipping in and out, but is it or isn't it, or yeah. And, and is yeah. there an animal? Yeah. And, and what kind of animal it? is it? And <laughs> who, you know, it, and, and all of those things. And I wondered if that was tough to write, if, if it was tough to go to that scene with Scorcher and Richie and examine the evidence and think about these crimes. It's not coincidence that in the final revelation, the kids' murders get skipped over completely. I mean, nobody, no, they just, the solution gets mentioned. There's no description, there's nothing. Nobody needs to read right. that, you know what I mean? Right. I don't need to write it, nobody needs to read it. But I think overall, again, being an actor really stood me in good stead because you get used to having a cutoff. You leave your character in the dressing room. You can't, I mean, some actors do. Some actors stay in character. The classic example is Daniel Day-Lewis, who, who <laughs> on my left foot, he insisted on being pushed everywhere in a wheelchair because his character was in a wheelchair. I think he learned to like make shoes for another role, too. Yes, Didn't he play yeah. like a cobbler and learn to actually make his own shoes? Yeah, in Last of the Mohicans, he went and lived out in the woods for months. <laughs> and he's amazing, so it works. But on the other hand, he had a breakdown on stage during Hamlet. So that's the risk you take when you decide to be that kind of actor or writer. That's so very slings and arrows. Have you ever watched yeah. that show? Yeah, we'll have to talk about that, that later. One <laughs> down in Only though I don't know, don't know it well. So. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it, you get good at having a barrier. If you're not Daniel Day-Lewis, you get good at going, right, the computer's off, that's off, it's done. I'm going back to my real life now, and that's not going to seep over. And I, I'm pretty good at it. That was the main thing that having a baby did for me was it made me more organized uh, routine-wise. No, I'm naturally nocturnal. I would stay up till four in the morning writing, sleep till noon, get up and, you know, and know when, when there's somebody, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's also, I think women are less sentimental than men. Ha, huh. And I, I, I feel that the, the women writers I know are more tough-minded and they're more tough-minded about children and can mm -hmm. actually handle some of this stuff better than the men can. If you think of like Gillian Flynn and Sophie Hanna, who are happily like slaughtering everything inside, you know. And, but no, but it's and it's not that they're just splattering gore everywhere. It's the psychological depth. Anybody, I think anybody can write about splattering gore. But when you're writing about the psychological stuff, that's where it could get very difficult. But you're right. They're just yeah. They're, some, they're from very tough books being yeah. written. Now I have to admit, I was. Stunned to find out there's not actually a murder squad. No, there that, and, and, and then I decided to do, the, yes, because there used to be, but there no longer yeah, is, if I understand yeah. it. And then I, I did the statistics, and I think I got this right. In 09, it's a little hard for me to be sure because statistics are slightly different in that there's homicide and there's manslaughter, and they're all added up. 148 homicides in all of Ireland in 2009. That many? Seriously? It, it might have been 84, Whoa. though. Yeah, okay. I'd say 84 sounds better. In Baltimore that year. <laughs> <laughs> we came in with 238, and we were number five. We've slipped from the top five. It was a sad day. But um, I do wonder about the challenges in writing about homicide in a society where it's not overly common. I mean, at the one case, it does mean that a lot of the cases are big cases, but, and it also, I think it also affects 
you know, what kind of setups you can use because of the nature of the weapons available to people. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, have you have you found it challenging to come up with enough cases for your murder squad or is your imagination? <laughs> well, again, John Connolly mentioned once before, I think that the problem with setting a murder in Ireland is that everybody knows who done it. <laughs> <laughs> and 90% of the time, it really is true. Huge numbers of our murders are, are drug gangs, mm -hmm. things. and those I'm not really interested in because, again, it doesn't have the personal element. You know exactly why A shot B, and it doesn't have anything, any particular psychological depth behind it. What I'm interested in are the other ones, which have the psychological, yeah, the intricacies that the murder ones, that the drug gang ones don't. But it does make it kind of difficult, the smallness of the country, finding ways in which these people wouldn't know exactly who done it. That's, yeah, that's what makes it more complicated. Well, certainly that's something that you, where the estates were of a great advantage in. The anonymity. Yeah, that's a, an entirely new thing. Because Ireland, like the murder rate has skyrocketed in the last 10 years, you know. That, if it's 84, that's a lot of murders for Ireland. That's huge, you know. And it used to be, I think one of the reasons it was so low was because everybody knew everybody. And if you killed somebody, your mommy would find out. Yeah. <laughs> you were in trouble, you know. If no, you're not that, that's true. Really, yeah. um, tightly knit societies, there's basically... They're safeguards. They are Right. Safeguard, you don't yeah. kill each other because you know each other mm. and you do need a certain amount. I think I read that it's now Dublin was perhaps the sixth most murderous city in Europe with all oh, the other... Yeah. All the others being Eastern European yeah, I wouldn't be and having severe drug problems and, and being, um, though I think Glasgow is pretty. Yeah, is that, pretty would <laughs> that would be That's up there. That's probably half pub fights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one yeah. of the things about the crime genre is that so many, when one's work is well regarded, and your work is very well regarded, and the reviews have been. I have literally never read a bad review of one of your books. Oh, I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, the writers always made, oh, I, although I bet that was one of the things that, one of the funniest things, and, and we don't often speak about what is funny in your work, <laughs> but what cracked me up is the pitch perfect rendition of what happens on an internet board. <laughs> in you. which, you know, someone Thank goes you. to the board with a problem. And the discussion just breaks down, and no one's yeah. talking about what the original question was anymore, yeah. and people are bickering among themselves. And I said, oh, this sounds like an, a writer who may have read some other internet boards of a different type. But that aside, <laughs> I, I have never read a, a bad review of your work. The reviews have been uniformly excellent. And what I see in the States, I'm not sure if it's the same in, in the UK and in Ireland, is that reviewers then become very anxious to sort of then divorce the writer from crime fiction. When they're like, mm. oh, these books are really good, so now we need to figure out why they're not crime fiction. Mm. And have you, I mean, you seem to have embraced the genre so wholeheartedly. I've never seen you say anything that suggested you have anything but love and affection for being someone who's writing police procedurals, yeah. that you love this form. Yeah, I do, but I think... I don't think the borderlines are as clear as they once were. I really don't. And I think you were one of the pioneers who was breaking them down, you know, because it started very recently that this disintegration started to be accepted outside, you know, one or two outliers. I think there was a phase kind of 
Josephine Tay, who some of us were talking about earlier, was one of the first to just go, right, here are the conventions. I'm now going to go for a wander around them a long way out. So, you know, she's got one book where I think the franchise affair, what's the worst crime in it, is like wasting police time, and you find out who the bad guy is in about chapter two. And yet it's this chilling, suspenseful, edge-of-your-seat thing. But I think for a while in there, the conventions were being polished. The writers were busy kind of honing them and establishing the boundaries and, and bringing them to their, their peak. And then when the next generation came along, when, when all of us came along, it, there wasn't any point in just sticking solidly to the formula because it had been done perfectly before. It's true. What's the point? We had a generation. I mean, it's really more than a generation. But if we look to writers like Ed McBain slash Evan mm. Hunter, and in a way, Ed McBain was doing his own version of a murder squad, but in a very different fashion. Yeah. But uh, they wrote frequently. They wrote very well. Okay. There's just this polished perfection to their work. Yeah. Um, Lawrence Block is one of those. I mean, you have cited Dennis Lehane with Mystic River, which I think, yes. I think for a generation of writers, this is a seminal work. When, mm -hmm. when everyone sort of said, we're allowed to do that? Yeah, we can do more than one thing at once. It doesn't have to be just one thing. Yeah, we all kind of sat up and went, whoa, yes. And that's where one of the ones that started it all. I and also, I mean, I think one thing that's really striking about Mystic River is that there are not that many deaths and crimes in it. Yeah. I think if you count up, there is the horrible story that begins the book yeah. about the sexual assault, and then there are two homicides total. There's one, and one is in, in well in the past, isn't it? Uh, I think there one, there's one in the present day. Yeah, there's one in the present day. And but there's, there's the girl there's, who goes missing, but also yeah. I think a, a man is probably... Oh, okay, yes, yeah, yes, 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 yes. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Not Sorry, to give I, no spoilers. <laughs> but, I, but still, yeah. but by, you know what, this came after a decade in which the style was. Serial, serial killer, killers, yeah. mounting, and, and again, in this book, there are three dead and one injured. And it's all about what it does to the minds, not just of the victims, but of everyone around them, the people who grow up changed by this. Yeah, it's not about the gore and guts. It really isn't. It's purely about what it does to people's minds and how crimes can entangle, what it does to a society, to a community as well. I love that book. I really, I thought that was a wonderful book. I am going to take it to questions I could definitely monopolize your time for the rest of the evening, but that would be unfair. <laughs> I sense there are some people out there. Again, try to avoid spoilers. Um, I, my one last question would be, does everyone who work in, works in the murder squad, everyone has to be troubled on some level? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more interesting that way. I think people, like, when in doubt, mess with your character's head, basically. But I think people... Once you get over the age of, what, 25, maybe 30 if you're lucky, you've been damaged in some way. You just have. Some people, it's a lot younger than that. It's just, that's what life does. It's not, it's, it's not, there's nothing strange about that. And there's, so there's nothing interesting about watching, about reading about a character who's in no way damaged. It's like watching some guy sit on his couch, playing PlayStation and eating Doritos. He's happy, but you're bored, you know? <laughs> Fair Where enough. somebody who's damaged and, is but interesting. But of course, your your format also allows you to show someone like Scorcher, who mm. appears to be intact Honest. and perfect, and having no problems when you see him from the outside in Faithful Place. And then now yeah. we move to Broken Harbor, and he has a story too, as we all do. I'm going to open it to questions. Um, we do have a mic. It looks like right. Um, if you will come over here and stand at the mic and ask your question, then I'll make sure that everyone hears you. 
And don't be shy. If you have a question, please come over here. How did you decide which character would be the narrator in each book? If you could take us through your thought process, like why Scorcher now, why Cassie in the second book? Well, Cassie was kind of, oops, thank you, sorry. Um, Cassie was kind of an easy choice because when the idea hit me, I, I liked her, but I thought, I liked her from In the Woods, but I thought she was being seen very much through Rob's eyes as this mysterious, enigmatic, slightly um, impenetrable character. I thought through her eyes she probably wasn't any of that. She was just doing her job, doing her thing. And when I came up with the idea for the likeness, it seemed like a natural for her, the idea of the detective who runs into her own doppelganger when the doppelganger is already dead. And the only way to find out who this is and to find out who killed her is, is in a way to become her. That made total sense for Cassie because she had, which had been set up in In the Woods, she had a past as an undercover detective. So that was a sensible way that she could both, her identity could have been borrowed by this girl and that she could move into this girl's life. It seemed to be a natural thing. When I was writing the likeness, I, I, I just liked writing Frank. He was interesting. And he was, um, he's so ruthless. And it's fun to write that when you, if you're somebody who's trying to do your best and be good to people and not mess them around, it's a lot of fun writing somebody who doesn't have any scruples at all. <laughs> it's fun. It's the same as for an actor. It's playing the evil character is always the most fun because you don't have to, you don't have to be constrained by those, those by your morals the way you do in real life, and nobody gets hurt because it's not real. And but Scorcher, was that wasn't the plan. The plan was for Stephen, who shows up in Faithful with this young, eager, kind of up-and-coming detective. He was the initial plan for the narrator. But as I wrote, those people who we were talking about, who ended up on those ghost estates, they're the ones who believed what they were told, that this is, this is the way you're supposed to go. This is, follow the rules and everything will work out well. And so I, it was obvious that it was a book about people who had tried to follow the rules and then the rules had let them down. And this didn't really seem to have much to do with, with Stephen, with the young up-and-coming detective. But there was a guy in Faithful Place for whom the rules were absolutely crucial. And that was Scorcher. And at first I was kind of going, but he's this pompous, rule-bound, uptight git. I don't want to write about him for two years. And I'm pretty sure you don't want to read about him for 400 pages. So I had my doubts. But Again, that actor thing where you're going, nobody thinks of themselves as a pompous, uptight, rule-bound git. Everybody's got reasons. And so I start, started thinking about what would make someone so into the rules and started thinking of Scorcher as much more damaged, much more intense, much more complex than he had been, what we were talking about, than he had been in Faithful Place. And I, he got less annoying to write, and I hope less annoying to read. <laughs> Someone else is working around to the mic. You can line up if you want. There's, you know, that's fine too. First off, thank you for the library for hosting this. Uh, I got to come from North Carolina, and since you weren't coming down far enough, I have a friend who lives here, so I was very excited to get to come. So thank wow. you. <laughs> um, I have to say that one of the reasons that you are my favorite living author is that <laughs> your 
characters spring out of pages and it doesn't take very long. You can get a couple, just a couple pages into a character and know whether you hate them, love them, and that to me is very rare. I mean, you can have fun, you know, Pulp Fiction and it's, it's great, but when you get into this, the beauty of what you create for these people, they're so real that I find that very impressive. Thank you. Um, and I'm very interested, and I'm sure you've heard this, but who's your favorite person that you've created? Oh, favorite in different ways, though. Um, the most fun to write was Frank in Faithful Place, definitely. Again, for the same reasons. The one I would, if I had to go for a pint with one of them, it would be Cassie out of the likeness, no, yeah. no question. Like, the others are all much too messed up. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not, see, she's just temporarily messed up. It's not an ongoing, like, part of who she is. <laughs> so she would be much easier for a pint. In a lot of ways, though, um, Rob, the narrator of In the Woods, he's always going to be my favorite because that was the first one and practically no one knew I was writing a book. I, I had no clue whether this was going to end up under the bed forever. I thought the odds were on, yes, it was going to end up under the bed. And yet I was, I was turning down acting work to finish this thing. I, and actors never turn down work, ever, ever, <laughs> ever. And I was turning down acting work and, and we were so broke. I, I could really have done with the money. For that. And yet I just wanted to finish this so much and I think when you've put your heart into something that way it's always going to stick with you so there's ways that he's going to always be my well, favorite. I'm glad it didn't end up under the bed. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my question also kind of relates to characters. Um, I feel like characters really come from the author themselves and I was kind of curious as to what character you related to the most or if that was why you chose four different characters is because each one kind of portrays a different aspect of you. See, I really, they don't come from sides of me. I was never that kind of actor either. There are some actors who are always going to be portraying an angle of themselves. And there are other actors who are character actors. They like playing stuff that's far from them. And I was always that kind of actor. Like I, um, I play a 10 year old boy, uh, a bunch of prostitutes for some reason. <laughs> And the last thing I did before all, all of this happened was uh, an ex-cheerleader turned hit woman. I have never been, <laughs> I've never been a cheerleader and I've never been a hit woman. I'm not sure which one would be the less likely. <laughs> no, I like stuff that's far from me. I always have. And that's, I like that as a writer as well. I think that's one of the reasons, one of the just multiple reasons why people go into these jobs is to explore people who aren't them. And you do get people who get into it because they want to explore what they've got to offer more. But you also get people who, who are most interested in what's not them, what's farthest from them. It's the same as um, what we were talking about with the home thing. I loved writing Faithful Place because that idea of home and rootedness generations deep is so alien to me. I have, I have no knowledge of it. And the only way I'm ever going to know what it feels like is to write about it. And it's the same with these characters. Scorcher in particular is very much not my kind of person. He just really... No, he's, he's not only is he not like me, he's not like any of my friends, you know? This kind of rule thing and everything in triplicate it, is a mystery to me. And the only way I'm ever going to get any understanding of it is probably by writing it, by, by playing that character in a way. So the farther from me, the better, the more interesting. Well, interesting. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, thank you both for being here. Um, both of you write books in which the place itself is a character. You know, Baltimore, we all know and love Charm City, is such a huge character in almost all of your books. And, you know, Dublin, Ireland, is, is such an important facet. 
And you touched a little bit on why place is so important and why home is so important, but how is it that you're able to explore the place of in the woods and the place of faithful place and how there's such different settings and yet you bring, you know, both of them to life so incredibly well? How, you know, how well do you, do you know Dublin? How do you get into these places and, and bring them to life as well? Thank you. They're mostly kind of half imaginary. Like most, most of the settings are, they're imaginary in themselves. There isn't like, Faithful Place isn't real. It's a street that I kind of resurrected that used to exist in a different bit of Dublin in the 20s and moved it across the river because it's funny, this kind of half real thing. It's the same with Broken Harbour. The place isn't real, but there are a number of places like that. I have ethical scruples about sticking my own story on top of somebody else's. And in all the real ghost estates, there are people who have their stories. And I don't feel right about going, yeah, sorry, I'm moving my characters into your house, along with their grisly murder. Sorry about that. I, no, I don't feel right about that, which is why I kind of create the imaginary places. But all of them have a lot in common with real places, which makes them easier to write, definitely. I mean, the Liberties, the neighborhood where Faithful Places set, that's real. These ghost estates are real. And it's one of the reasons why I set things in Ireland rather than like John Connolly in Maine or so. It's the only city I know that well. There's nowhere else where I would know the slang and the rhythms of speech and how long it takes to walk from A to B and what the traffic is like on a given Monday morning. You know, those little things are what give it texture. And I think it's just from knowing Dublin, for me anyway, that I end up writing about it. Any authenticity it's got is because because it's home and because I'm not entirely an insider, so I notice things that a real insider wouldn't, I think. I don't know if it's, if it's different for you in the Baltimore. You know, what's been interesting for me is that I've been spending less time in Baltimore. And I think, but I think more than anything else, what I noticed this year is I went to an event, and since it's now been 10 years since I worked at the newspaper, I don't understand the power dynamics in Baltimore mm -hmm. as well as I used to. I don't see how people fit together and... I don't know everyone's stories anymore. And that means that a big aspect of what I used to write about, which is sort of the local political scene, it's kind of lost to me. And I, I was very aware of that. And I, the book I have coming out in two weeks is set a in a completely fictional suburb, which is you know somewhere down near Annapolis. But that was because nobody wanted to have the suburban prostitute living next door. So <laughs> She's pretty near you, Marcia. <laughs> She's in your county. Keep an eye out. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, both of you for being here tonight. Um, I have a question for both of you, um, two questions. What do you find most challenging about uh, your work being a writer? And um, do you, when you write your, your uh, books, do you outline, or do you just sit down and start writing and see where it takes you? Please take that. Um, <laughs> so, I'll, I mean, I'll chime in too, but yeah. please go ahead. Um, the most challenging thing is not phoning up all my friends and asking if they want to come out for coffee, frankly. <laughs> no, I'm a social person, and I'm coming from acting, which is so social, and then you all go to the pub together. And being on your own, and if you're having a bad day, there's nobody who can go, oh, well, let's try it this way and see if that does anything. That's that's a big switch for me. That's a big switch. And no, I don't outline. I have a premise. I have a narrator. 
and I jump in and it makes for a lot of rewriting. I'm kind of, I do envy authors who outline because they know that there's a book there at the end. I never know that. I just have to hope that there is. <laughs> I, I kind of do, I always say I don't outline. That's not exactly true. I kind of stop and I ask myself, what do I know? I, the book I'm working on right now, a third of it is sort of outlined in that I've written down that there are these 15 different chapters and these things happen in those chapters. And most of them are written. And then there's this whole present day narrative thread. And I, I know nothing of what's going on. It's just sort of like the outline it says, and he investigates some more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always felt I've, there's no right way to do it. The people who outline swear by it. They say it makes life easier. Uh, but then I've heard the quote, and I've heard it attributed to you know, no surprises for the writer, no surprises for the reader. And what I love is that moment of serendipity where you see something in your own text that you never planned for. Yes. And it just yeah. comes together. It's these opportunities that are created by being kind of free. And, you know, the challenge is what is really makes it wonderful, which is this is a kind of play. At least it is for me. I was telling, I, I like to write. And so many writers say they hate to write. They hate being at their keyboard. They like to have written. I, I like to write. I, I, I had a job, and this is better. <laughs> and and I, if anything, I would say the challenge is to never lose that perspective. You know, I, I was, again, talking to someone today, I'm very good friends with George Pelicanos from D.C., he's a tough-minded guy, and he has no patience at all for writers' complaints. Like, it's not digging a ditch. And there's so many worse jobs in the world. And so the challenge is not to lose sight of that, because it's a pretty privileged thing to get to sit around and make stuff up, and people actually give you money for it. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like a job a kid would make up. What are you going to yeah. do when you're big? I'm going to make things up and get paid for it. Yeah, kid, right you are. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the dream. It's the kid's, kid's dream job. It's wonderful. <laughs> And I think this will be our last question. We're going on 8 o'clock, and I want to be mindful of time. Judy's nodding, so take us home. Good evening. Thank you both for your time this evening. Uh, Rob and Cassie, who have this um, almost childlike relationship for 300 or 400 pages, and then they finally do what everyone's waiting for them to do. Why does Rob behave so badly? And, and, <laughs> And sabotage, <laughs> go out of his way to sabotage the thing. Well, that's, I think, that's what's at the core of the book, is the fact that what happened when he was 12 years old, I'm going to try and not spoil it, but answer at the same time. So if I'm a little um, unclear, I'll clarify after. If the, yeah. But what happened when he was 12 has totally split his mind, just it's cracked him straight across. He is damaged. And the idea of making this of doing anything irrevocable, of making a leap away from what he knows into the unknown, into the unfamiliar. It's terrifying. He runs a mile. And with Cassie, it, there's no way to go back to exactly where they, you have to make the leap and go forward. And he runs a mile because I, I, I because yeah, because of the damage that's been done to him, rather than, 
I, I was going to say rather than anything that's innate to his character, but I think at this point it probably is so deeply woven in. And he does the same thing later in the book when it comes to another crucial point. He gets to the verge of the irrevocable and he runs a mile. That's the damage. It, at this point it's probably so deeply woven in that it is part of him, but it's not part of who he would have been if this book hadn't happened, if the events of the, when he was born, when he was 12 hadn't happened. Thank you. Thank the audience for being incredibly Thank attentive you. and enthusiastic. <laughs>